In our particular community group, we've been going through Greg Kukul's uh, series on tactics. Uh, I know that many of you have seen that, and it's a really helpful uh, training to help us have conversations with people that are not familiar with our faith. Uh, it also gives some really great tools in having really powerful conversations with individuals that you're trying to provide the hope of the gospel to. In the last session, in uh, session eight, he does these mini tactics, and he talks about how people sometimes come up with what he would probably call spiritual trash talking. It's when people make accusations about Christians who, um, that's basically name calling. And his basic premise is that whenever you get someone just calling, name calling, like calling people stupid or idiots for believing something, you know that they don't have a real argument. They're just trying to intimidate people by saying that they're stupid or whatever. Uh, for instance, as he walks through here, one of the um, challenges that he says is, well, Christians are hypocrites. And so that's the reason I don't believe in religion, I don't believe in God, whatever, because Christians are hypocrites. And in this particular tactic, he says, well, sometimes we need to embrace those things. And his comment is to say, well, yeah, there's lots of times Christians are hypocrites, but there's a lot worse things that are part of Christian's life, like lying and cheating and all this kind of stuff. We acknowledge that, but the whole point is, I know, as he puts it in his series, I know a lot of irreligious people and unspiritual people who are hypocrites too. Uh, they don't even live up to their own particular standards or they have double standards in which they live to. So the, the idea is, so what? It doesn't nullify anything in terms of the reality of Christ and the, and the authenticity of the gospel. It's just broken human beings trying how to live out this calling that God places on their life. Uh, the other tactic that he tries to deal with is, well, Christians are stupid. And his response is exactly the same thing. Well, and this is his words, not necessarily mine, but he says, yeah, there are some Christians that are stupid. They, I mean, they do dumb, dim-witted things, and that happens once in a while for probably all of us in some respect or another, depending on the situation. But on the other side of the coin, I know lots of people who aren't Christians, who are irreligious, who might believe in evolution that are kind of stupid too. Uh, because they do lots of dumb, dim-witted things, and so, again, it doesn't have any bearing in terms of the authenticity of Christianity. Uh, the reason I mentioned that this morning is because as Paul comes to a Pauline conclusion to the book of Romans, which someone reminded me this morning, we started January 2018 in the book of Romans, and we're almost at the conclusion uh, the, but as Paul does his normal Pauline landing at the end of the book, he still wants to remind these Christians of some things that are relevant to both the idea of our brokenness and yet warns these particular Christians of some real dangers that actually can crop up within the community of faith themselves. And so the text that we're in this morning is Romans 16, verses 17 uh, through 20, and I want to begin by just getting that in front of you so that you uh, allows the Spirit of God to start sifting, sifting it through your mind and your thoughts as we embark on this journey this morning. He says simply this, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting, or some versions will put naive. 
for the, report, uh, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now, as a backdrop, Paul is writing from Corinth to the Christians in Rome. Uh, that may not be, I've tried to put a map there of giving the big picture, but Corneth is this little speck in the middle of uh, Archaea, and he has done several journeys around and touched a lot of different lives. It's unlikely that Paul's actually been to Rome at this point, but he knows people either because of his network of individuals uh, or even people that have come to him uh, seeking help and wisdom. But he is writing to a people that he hopes to go and visit, and that's his plan. Like normal, he has a little bit of a detour. He wants to go back to Jerusalem and then head back there, which didn't work out quite according to his own purposes because he was imprisoned and ended up heading back to Rome as a slave or imprisoned, and so it took a little bit longer than normal. But as he finishes the book of Romans, he's talked all about God's righteousness and how it needs to impact a very corrupt and corrupted uh, society and culture. Uh, if you look at Corneth, we don't have time to go into the absolute moral evil that just permeates the very foundation of that particular culture. And Rome is no second place to that kind of event. Uh, when you got Pharaoh, uh, basically Caesars who treated themselves like gods, you know that they had a bit of a god complex, to borrow the phrase. So the, the, the idea here is that he's trying to get these people anchored and he knows that life isn't easy. He knows that there are dangers and there's landmines that can be stepped on. And that God isn't there as a concierge just to protect people from every kind of bad thing that happens. He's going to challenge them to, to be wise, not to be judgmental, and we'll talk about that as we go, but he wants them to live with wisdom, to know that they are not going to be ignorant in a world that can be brutal and have a lot of harsh things happen. And he doesn't want them to be victims to individuals who uh, are trying to take advantage of them. And so as he begins to move in this, his exhortation is to cling to the truth. He, he wants them to make sure that the truth is what defines their motivation and the, the anchor of what they believe and what their values are going to be and how they set up their priorities and behaviors, that it needs to affect right down to their character how they are supposed to live. It's the only unchanging reality that comes back to saying, this is what you can have absolute confidence in. Because the culture's gonna change. People's lives and ideas and concepts and philosophy is gonna keep changing. And if you don't wanna get caught up in the whirlwind and get tempted to chase things that aren't really that important, he says you've, you've gotta keep your lives clinging to the truth. And so that's his exhortation. He begins by saying, listen, I want you to start by keeping watch for people who are gonna create hindrances and obstacles among you which is a little disconcerting because he's just finished a whole section talking about amazing individuals, men and women, who are literally great examples of living by faith, having the kind of confidence in God that they were risk takers, that these are the kind of people you wanna hang around. Uh, he says that in other books, but he also recognizes that as powerfully as God's grace works in individuals, we're still broken human beings. And so we can't exempt anybody from the fact that sometimes conflict and, and difficulties can happen. And, and so as he works through this, uh, he, he warns them 
about certain kinds of people. He says, I want you to watch for and be careful to observe individuals around you that can cause hindrances and obstacles. Now, there's really two kinds of problems we run into. One is circumstantial. It's the circumstances we live in, and sometimes they can be very neutral. The more dangerous ones are people. I mean, we jokingly say in ministry that ministry would be a snap if it wasn't for all the people kind of thing. Uh, Obviously, that's a total benevolent tongue-in-cheek way to talk about things because the very privilege of ministry is to move alongside people in their journeys. But we have to realize that the church isn't filled with this utopic meta-human people that live all above their brokenness. And one of the traps that the church has often gotten into historically is to try to create this facade that we've got it all put together. That the idea of being a Christian means we've got our act together. We are on a trajectory that follows the Lord Jesus in life, but life is more about constantly learning how to adjust my life to the way God wants to live than going, hey, I've got my act together. I know how to live life. I know how to do it. You'll run into Christians who think that, but that's often precarious. And so as he comes to this, he says, listen, I want you to watch for people because there's two things that they can do. They can create obstacles and they can create hindrances. And his exhortation here, it really doesn't mean that it's actually happening, but he's saying, listen, it's only a matter of time before you're going to run into somebody that sort of associates with who you are as a community of faith that is simply there to take advantage of you. Now, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this can, in one sense, happen to any of us where Paul says, well, you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human ways? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely human? He says that, that's the kind of stumbling blocks and hindrances that you can get into. So we're all susceptible to fall into the trap where we, by our own uh, enamored, uh, being enamored by certain people or truths, can actually start creating divisions because we're more loyal to them than we are Jesus. But the idea here even goes beyond that. The word hindrances is the word scandalos, which we get our word scandal from, and it's those times in life where people do things that create Uh, literally trap people. It's the word used for people who hunt with snares and they're trying to trap rabbits or or rodents or those kinds of things. And and so there's people that he's warning them about that are deliberately going to try to bait people into buying into who they are or what they say is true and it's simply a trap. It's a way to gain personal loyalty. But the other idea here is not just warning about people, but obviously the warning here is about certain kinds of ideas. You'll notice that the text is pretty clear when it says that there's individuals who are going to create hindrances and uh, that is contrary to the teaching which you have received. Now, he's not just talking about any teaching. He's really talking about God's revelation. He's talking about the Word of God. Now, Peter tells us and reminds us that no revelation is a matter of one's own personal interpretation. But these individuals that God chose, that gave us what we would call the canon of Scripture, God's divine revelation, were people who were carried along by the Spirit of God and in the most 
natural context, whatever, the Spirit of God guided them in terms of what they were communicating to make sure that we had not just somebody else's idea, but we had the revelation from God himself about who he is and how we're to live. And so the, the challenge here is that he's saying is that the standard of truth is not based on what any of us think it is, it's based on what God says it is. And it comes back to his word and his revelation because we live in a broken, upside-down world. doesn't matter how much common sense life makes to us and what we think works. God comes into that upside-down world and he flips it the other way around and saying, listen, from a human perspective, what I might reveal to you in the minds of humanity might sound foolish. The cross sounds like foolishness to people. And other people want signs. They want proof. They might call it scientific proof, they might, but they want to be the final authority about what's right and what's true and what's real. And, and so he's coming to them and saying, listen, I've de- given to you, even through this letter, a deposit of, of God's revelation and truth, and this is what needs to guide your life. This is contrary and, and to some people who want to walk in, and they're going to be individuals who, based on their own personal convictions, have an idea that they want to thrust upon the community of faith. It can be a concept, it can be personal convictions, it can be an idea, it can be related to philosophy. It is, but one thing is true is that he makes it clear here that, is that it's not necessarily in sync with the revelation that we've deposited to you that comes from God himself. We talked about this a little bit when we were in Genesis chapter 3, and I think it's a helpful way to think about it. When Eve was debating with the serpent, the, the focal point was God's command. Here's God's command, here's God's word. But the serpent was giving his commentary on God's word. And we can tell that while some things were true, there was a subtle deception in it to get Eve thinking maybe she didn't have all the right information. So there's God's command, and then there's people like me and teachers and people you listen to on podcasts and and Sunday school teachers and whatever, where whether they're using a resource or not, they're giving commentary on God's command or God's word, and we want and hope and continue to evaluate that what they're communicating to us helps us understand the true meaning of what God's word says and what God's word means. However... We also know that people's commentary is not the same thing as God's command. And we always have to keep that in mind. One of the two terms that we use when it comes to hermeneutics and exegesis is that there's exegesis, which means drawing the meaning of the text, or the meaning out of the text, and then there's eisegesis. That's where I read my own ideas into the text and I make it say something that it's not really saying. Now that's always a danger in terms of commentary because we all have our own prejudices, we all have our own context. We, uh, especially in America, regardless of what we think about it, we didn't live back in first century Palestine, so they have a whole culture and a whole way of life that's different than ours. And so that's why we do these massive studies on history and culture and language and all this stuff because our responsibility, if we have any integrity at all, regardless of the commentary, is to help you know what is God's command, what does his word say, what does it really mean, and then how is it related to where you and I have to live. But commentary is not the same thing as God's command. 
always need to keep that in mind. In fact, the Bereans, when Paul went in there, they were studying the scriptures to see if what he said was actually so. And that always becomes the admonition from someone like me, is that we all have to be students of the scriptures. We all have to learn to study it and know it. And then finally, there's personal convictions. So there's God's command, there's personal, there's uh, commentary, and then there's personal convictions. Now, most people develop convictions based on what God's command is or on what people's commentary is. But we have to remember that my personal conviction is not equal to and has the same authority as God's command and God's word. It's it, the danger, and we've talked about this for two years, is that when people start weaponizing their personal convictions and inflicting it on other people, that can become a huge problem. But people often do that because they absolutely know this is what God's word says and you have to do it even if I have to force you to do it. And that always creates a problem. <laughs> we need to encourage one another. We need to keep exploring the word. But the, the idea here is he's saying, listen, in the world that we live in, don't be naive. You're going to have people come in and try to convince you of things that are not in keeping and they're contrary to what the truth is that you've been learning. Be smart about it. Don't be naive. The problem in a faith community is that we're taught about believing in God's word and extending grace and loving people. So we have a natural propensity to, to believe the best. And sometimes that's not the best way to think, especially when it comes to people and their motives. But he also, in this process, says, listen, there's going to be people who are going to create hindrances and obstacles possibly scandals and things that are going to be contrary to the truth of Scripture, and you need to watch for those people. And it's interesting that his next comment isn't, you got to challenge them and get in your face. What does he say? If you look at the text, he says, you got to avoid these people. This is an interesting statement. It's an imperative, so it's a command, so it's not an option. He says, I don't want you entertaining these individuals. I want you to avoid them. And it raises the issue that when we're thinking about how this works, and obviously the context that they're dealing with, is there's some people that are associating somehow with those local body of believers who then start trying to front their own agenda for their own particular purpose. And he says you need to avoid them. Now most of us would say, well, we need to get rid of them. Right? That's the way we do things in America. We don't, we don't avoid them. We sometimes avoid them, but we just assume get rid of them because... And there's places in the scripture that might substantiate some more radical and intentional direction. But the idea here is that it's not talking about people who sometimes get on soapboxes and feel something's really important. They kind of irritate us and they've got their personal preference, but I don't believe that's who we, the kind of person he's talking about. We all have personal things that we love and we're convinced about and we want to share with other people and I don't think that's the intent here in terms of what he's talking about. He's talking about people who are intentionally trying to exploit people to get them to buy into who they are because they have a higher agenda about literally manipulating people to buy into their own thing. Let me give you an example of how I think this works. And there's lots of different illustrations in the scripture, but I think the imperative here about avoiding people is kind of like Joseph being caught in Pharaoh's court with his wife and he's all by himself and what does he do? He just flees. Why? 
because the danger is really high and it's very real. And so he just flees the environment and the context. He still gets in trouble because she ends up manipulating the story so that he gets thrown in prison. But it's that kind of thing that he's worried about. There's clear and present danger spiritually for an individual if they're going to buy into these ideas. The other picture is, I think, Psalm 1. If you remember Psalm 1, and I'm sure you've all got it memorized, but the idea of Psalm 1 is blessed is the person, and the first thing it does is talks about who they don't hang out with. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And the, and, the, and the simple reality that we need to understand is that sometimes bad people hide in safe places. Sometimes churches are great places for bad people to hide because they know people are going to give them the benefit of the doubt. There's, there's sort of this implicit sense that we want to believe in people and trust them. And, and the issue that we have to often face is that sometimes there's people that we need to just not hang around. And I'm not just even, I'm talking about the general principle. I mean, certainly that creates a problem in terms of people being in the church because we want everyone to be welcome and we know that everyone's broken. And so nobody's got it all put together where they can stand back and go, you know, you don't belong here because you haven't got your act together the way I do. But But the point here is that there are some people in life and it might be someone who calls themselves your friend or it might be someone at work or it might be someone at school that you hang out with or whatever it happens to be that it's not safe to hang with them because they are dangerous to your spiritual health and well-being. And it doesn't sound very spiritual to us because it's kind of like, aren't we supposed to love everybody? Yeah, But we have to remember, just because God loves a broken world doesn't automatically mean he accepts everybody. It's only when they surrender to him through faith in Christ that God accepts anybody into the family of God. The idea that God loves everybody and he died for them, therefore everyone gets to go to a better place, is unbiblical. It's conditional. It requires a person to surrender to God by saying, I'm a sinner I'm broken, I violated God's moral laws, I have trespassed against others, I have acted with moral evil towards people around me, and I deserve God's judgment, but the, and the only way I recognize to avoid that is admitting my sin, asking God to forgive me, and accepting Christ as part of my life. It's a little disquieting, but that's the reality that he's saying with, is that we need to know ourselves well enough People who are really spiritually mature might be able to hang around people who might have a very caustic and toxic idea about Christianity and they can engage those people and try to share the gospel with them where somebody who's not as mature in the faith needs to avoid like the plague. I mean, isn't that why we tell our kids don't hang out with strangers? Why? Because they're like puppy dogs. If someone comes to them that's an adult and says, hey, listen, my parents told me to come and pick you up, they'll go, Okay, let's go for a ride. And sometimes we can be like that as Christians. Now, the, the, the danger that we need to get into the, in this process is the danger that sometimes churches have defined themselves by what they're not. You know, historically, lots of churches have gotten into this problem. Oh, uh, we're going to avoid them because we don't like the way they do this. 
we're going to avoid them because, well, they do things differently. We're going to avoid them for these reasons. And there's been whole movements within denominations at times where they've defined themselves by what we're not, rather than saying, here's what we're committed to. And so it can turn into a very negative, very judgmental kind of Christianity because while we're being watchful and we're going to find every little thing that somebody says wrong and we're going to start avoiding them, we're going to point out their error, we're going to go on the attack and make sure that everybody knows how wrong they are. But Psalm 1 comes back to us and says, well, we avoid these people, but the delight of a person who's blessed is in the law of the Lord, and they meditated on it day and night. Life isn't defined just by what we don't do. It has to be defined by what we're committed to. And so that's when it comes to understanding the way we live. It's like, here's what God's word says I'm supposed to live. It's not all about, here's what I'm not going to do, because the absence of bad things doesn't make me spiritual. You can avoid all the things in the world and be the most negative, caustic, immature, juvenile Christian in the world because you're not committed to the things that God says we ought to be committed to. And first and foremost is his word. And and there's lots of Christians who get in the trap like, well, it's boring, I don't understand what it means. Then find out. Like, if we value this at all, like, why would you go, well, you know, I read through Leviticus, so I'm not reading my Bible anymore. I don't even know how that's possible, but anyway, I love Leviticus, it's fantastic, but we won't get into that. But that's why we have things like community groups and and disciple making and life on life is because we know at times that life is overwhelming, you're hearing a lot of voices in life and the most important voice that you need to hear is what God says. And yet the danger for you and I is we spend way so much time listening to Instagram and Reels and social media. You spend hours and hours and hours listening to stuff that's like, no disrespect, but some of it's just crap. We make very little time to to memorize and soak this in and understand what it means and struggle with the reality of what does that mean and how it ought to change my life. And so the, the fallacy that I don't have time usually is consumed by the pursuit of useless, temporary, first world stuff. And so I want to encourage you that when you, if, you, if you're not committed to the truth, you can't cling to it. I, I know a lot of us would love God just to do sprinkle dust and it would just absorb into here and I have no work to do and it just, it just pops into reality in my mind and I know what to do. And then the Spirit of God will do it for me so I don't have to do it. But the idea is that that there's a responsibility here that every one of us have to take to ourselves, that I can't blame other people around me for my bad choices and spiritual floundering, that I have to take responsibility for my own growth and my own intimacy with God, that if I don't love God with all my heart and I'm bored with it, there's a certain level that I've got to take my own responsibility for this. Because we as a church can only do so much to encourage you, but Christ is the solution, not us. So Paul runs through this. In fact, 2 John, verse 10 and 11, makes this statement. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Forever greets him, takes part in his wicked works. 
This isn't just sort of tossing around different ideas. If it doesn't mesh with Scripture, then we should avoid it. And then Paul's explanation of the importance of this truth, he describes in three ways. These individuals, he's going to say, first have departed from the truth. Their dedication is to self above all else, and they're, decept- and they're committed to deceiving others. This is their, his reasons why he says this is important about these particular individuals. The first thing he says is their departure from truth is that they do not serve our Lord Christ. And the first thing that we have to understand in this process of clinging to the truth is that commitment to the truth isn't just about a concept, it's the person of Jesus. And you show me a person who's committed to truth and they're not committed to Jesus and you're going to run into a problem at some point. Everybody wants to define their own spirituality today. It's like, well, I believe in lots of things. I believe in Jesus' teaching, but I believe in... in uh, Buddha and Hindu and all kinds of other philosophical ideas. I'm just going to pull a bunch of these ideas together to feel, see which one fits. I don't know about you, but when I read Jesus, he doesn't hold partnership with anyone. He doesn't share his glory with anyone. It's we either buy into Jesus or we're not buying into him at all. And I know our our culture wants to master this whole idea of being eclectic. Let's accept everything. Let's let's advocate everything in life. Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. Now, there's a lot of other kinds of truth in terms of physics and other things that is a whole different conversation. That's not the point. But if you're trying to decide how should I live, it comes back to the gospel. Do I really believe that Jesus is the answer to our brokenness as human beings? And so he, he, he first and foremost talks about that clinging to the truth is clinging to Jesus. And there, there's possible that someone's sitting here that they have never responded to the gospel. And that's the first and foremost truth that you have to buy into. That Christ is God in the flesh and that he came to redeem you and me and everyone out of their brokenness and moral rejection of God's guidance, out of, out of a self-directed life, and, and I'm willing to surrender to him and ask him to forgive me for those things because those people don't love God with all their heart, soul, and mind. They might accept him as an idea or as a concept, but they're not surrendering to him as a person. And it begins with the gospel. But the second element is this, is that it's a departure from truth. That's what he said. That they're proposing ideas that are contrary to what you've been taught. And so as he moves through this, I also want you to notice that he talks about the Lord Jesus. I think as Christians we've got to be careful that we become vulnerable when we're not living under the Lordship of Christ. It's every day we got to need to wake up and say, I need to surrender. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about temptation or philosophy. We all know our own stuff. We've got enough brokenness inside of us that we can do some really stupid things if we give any ground to those kinds of things in our life and we can find our place ourselves in a place that we don't want to be and we have no idea how we got there if we give a little bit of room to some things in our life that aren't healthy. And so as he begins to to build this, he's very particular about the kind of truth. It's built on the person of Christ, it's biblical truth, 
It's that which we've received from God. But the second reason he explains the importance of truth is because these individuals that are creating the hindrances and the obstacles are really dedicated to self. They serve their own appetites. Now, that doesn't mean they love to eat. That's not the idea there. It's the desires of the flesh. It's the inclinations of what they feel and the impulses of their body. And so the idea here is that it can be built around feelings or desires or lusts. It can be reshaped around their own idea of what's true and what's not true, their own belief system. They can have their own set of priorities because they're, they're going to hobby horse one particular idea. It's reflected in their character, but sometimes it's really hard to see because they tend to blend in. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a problem. If they were so blatantly caustic and disrespectful, we would vo- avoiding them would be easy because there's just, who wants to be around people that are that, that dangerous? So they, they are serving themselves and not Christ. They're certainly not serving others and they become an authority to themselves. I mean, that's kind of the framework. You can run into the nicest people in the world, but they become their own authority. And their own authority can be built around anything. Well, this is what I feel, therefore that's what's right and true. As long as I don't hurt anyone else, what's wrong with me doing whatever I want? And so the, the, the idea of this doesn't mean they're, they're an absolute terrorist spiritually and they're going around literally bombing people in their faith. But these people are deeply committed to a self-directed final authority of what they think and feel and everybody else is wrong. So their motivation is very different than what those who want to follow Jesus. They serve their own appetites. And then the third reason it's really important is because their deception is they're trying to deceive those who are naive. Now, most of us would say, you know, I read this and the inclination is, uh, they wouldn't get me. You ever ever been tempted to do that? Uh, They wouldn't fool me on this thing. Famous last words. And so the idea is, is that when we get into life, especially when we get bored with it, we, tend to, we can be really vulnerable to new ideas because that's energizing. You know, the danger in the Christian life is the, the little phrase, oh, I already know that. I already know that. Yeah, I've heard that dozens of times. i heard that since I was a kid. I already know that. The question I usually ask when I hear, I already know that, Oh, okay, well, tell me how that's reshaping your life. Like, how is that presently reshaping the way you live? Then they look at me and go, well. Because we, we, we're in danger when we become addicted and proudful of what we know rather than sometimes how we live. And the first thing that Paul's gonna talk about here when he gets to the end of this, when he praises these Christians Do you notice what the phrase is? He praises them for their obedience. Not obedience to their own idea or the ideas of these people causing hindrances, but he praises them for the obedience to the truth that they've received. Listen, I think that the the most critical movement in the next five years for our disciple-making framework here as as a church is not trying to teach people more about what they need to know, 
It's, it's teaching them how to obey the truth that they already know. Because I, I, I care about what you know, but let me put it this way. I don't care what you know. I want to know how that's changing the way you live. And believe me, that's a much more difficult question. I don't like answering it myself sometimes. Here, you want a hint how to make life really interesting? When you ask somebody, say, how was your week? And they go, well, it was fine. Then just say, well, how have you seen the Lord working in your life? And if they say, well, I've seen God do all these things. He, you know, got me this job and those things, and that's really cool. But then I usually take it a step. I said, well, what I really meant is, how have you seen God working to change who you are as a person in the image of Jesus? Then it's like, well, it was a good week. Well, we've all fallen to that. We get it, right? Because sometimes we're so busy doing life, we're so busy listening to so many voices that we don't even hear the one that's inside of us when the Spirit of God says, hey, listen, that neighbor over there that you're supposed to be loving, here's a good time to put some action into what you claim you know. Go over there and help. Well, I think they've already got it figured out. I don't care. Just go and do what I've asked you to do. Well, I'm not sure they need my help. Yeah, okay, I got it. Go over there and do something. Because the, 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 what he praises them for is their obedience to truth, not how much they know. And I think it's a powerful statement because in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, you know, love edifies, knowledge tends to make us arrogant. And the danger with the scriptures is we can brag about how much we know and how many verses we can quote, but what, what refreshes and energizes the heart of another person is when you come and say, wow, I stepped out because I felt God was leading me to this, and I stepped out to reach out to this person, and this turned into a bizarre week tracing this direction, but here's, here's what God did in my life to make me more compassionate. Here's something God taught me about loving people that might be hard to love. Here's how he's changing my perspective and my values and beliefs. And so he praises them because their reputation is built on obedience. They have a resilience to obey God's truth over personal and cultural practices. They're not going to compromise what that looks like. The second element of this is his passion for these Christians, what I call their resilience. I want you to be wise regarding what's good. You know, we, we love being masters of trivial pursuit. You ever watch Jeopardy and some of those movies or shows? I'm just like astounded how much people know. I mean, it's just absolutely blows my mind that it doesn't matter. You can ask things about physics. You can ask social economics. You can ask about businesses. You can ask about anything. And some of these people just pop answers off. Like, I don't know. They either have a photographic mind or they spend a million hours studying stuff that I wouldn't even care less about. But, but they're way more brilliant than I am in some ways. Paul doesn't want us to be masters of trivial information. He wants us to be wise, skilled at living with wisdom according to the truth that God has given to us. So that 
you've learned in such a way that as you obey truth, you can turn around to someone else and they say, listen, I'm really struggling with this. What does it look like? I can talk by personal experience. Here's one way that I've discovered how God changes me in the midst of my obedience to him. And then he says, I want you to be innocent regarding evil. In a sense, he's flipping it. Instead of saying, don't be naive, I want you to be innocent. It's a little bit like, man, you were taking this conversation in a completely different direction than I was going. I didn't, wouldn't even go there because I don't think that way. You know, it's kind of the worst case scenario. Something happens and there's some people who always think worst case scenario. Uh-oh, that happened. They, someone missed an appointment, so that must mean they got caught in a car accident and then they're dead and they're in the hospital or they're in the hospital and then they died. And, you know, and then when you get, get to them, they go, oh, my blew a tire and it took me like half an hour to get it fixed. We can do that spiritually too. And so he's, he's saying, listen, I want you to be wise and masters of what is good and innocent regarding things that are evil and bad. And yet it's hard to pull our minds out of that. And then he talks about this promise for these Christians. The first one is their refuge. The God of peace, he makes a really interesting statement, the God of peace is going to crush Satan under your feet. Oh, that sounds cool. That would be really cool. Now it's future tense, so there's the Hebrew statement in chapter two that talks about that God came, Christ came and his sacrifice destroyed the power of the evil one. So that comes through the sense of the gospel that we find ultimate freedom through trusting Christ and responding to the gospel. God frees us from living under the dominion of Satan and darkness and we transfer it into the kingdom of God's son. That's freedom. And so whether we experience all of it right now or not, that's the, but someday God is going to crush Satan under their feet. Now I'm not gonna get into all the nuances of that. What I wanna say regarding that particular text is we gotta listen to what he's saying. That first and foremost, this is God's battle, not ours. And one of the things you have to realize is that God's gonna win. That Satan ultimately is not gonna triumph over our lives because God's got our back. And so we have to live in a way that we're not couched in fear, but we live with the confidence that wherever my life goes and the experiences I have, whether I interpret them as good or bad, God's gonna be with me in the journey and he's got my back. That someday, regardless of all the unfair things that happen and the moral evil we may experience from others, that at some point the righteous judge will bring all that righteousness to bear upon those who have rejected him and have done evil, who've placed hindrances in our life, who've, who've created obstacles in our life and possibly tried to destroy our faith and deceive even those who are the elect. And someday, God's gonna triumph. And that's the God of peace. But the only ones he's gonna triumph for are those who have peace with him. That's Romans 5. Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. And only those who have peace with God, who've discovered forgiveness in Christ and become part of God's family, have peace with him. That God accepts them, they're part of his family, that he will never let us go. But those who don't have peace with God, they're gonna get caught in the collateral damage of what God does to Satan. And it wouldn't take much to talk about end times and, and the idea of final judgment and those who are family and friends who might be very nice people but want nothing to do with Christ and following him are 
in great danger, as Romans 1 says, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against those who've suppressed the truth. And for you and I, it ought to put a bit of an urgency in our heart to say, listen, I don't want any of that to happen to anyone. We can, make, we can sort of jokingly say, we can look at the last page and, and we know that God wins. And because of that, then we will win. But it ought to give us greater confidence how we live in the world. We've got nothing to be ashamed of. We've got nothing to be embarrassed about. We are God's first responders in a world that is perishing. And I, I would love if Paul wrote a letter to Oak Grove Church and say, listen, man, there's other churches that have heard of your reputation about being obedience to the truth of God's word, your resilience to not compromise, to be committed with compassion to a world that is perishing. Wouldn't that be a cool letter? I think he could write it to us. Because I know as I interact with you, that the greater passion of your heart is I want to be faithful to Christ. I want to honor Jesus. I want to live by the power of the Spirit of God. And so it gives us reason to cling to the truth, which is beginning with clinging to Jesus Christ himself. Dig your roots deep into him. Walk with intimacy. Make sure you have a rich and deep prayer life that that brings all of my life before the throne of grace so that we might receive grace and mercy. It's about surrender, not performance. And as we encourage one another in this journey, we will develop a reputation, just like Paul says, of being a people who in spite of all the clutter and all the distractions, the greatest passion of our life is that we'll become masters of what is good, not only for us, but good for our world because on the forefront of the way we live is the gospel of Jesus. You want to make that kind of difference? You don't have to go conquer the world. You just have to care for the person that you meet on Monday morning when you go to work. You have to be willing to take a step and have a conversation to get to know the journey of someone that's at school or where you go on vacation. Or someone who's hurting and has a need and looks pretty vulnerable. We need to be a people that reflect the person and the character of Jesus. Father, we understand that in many ways the Christian life is impossible on our own efforts. And we don't want to live naive, vulnerable lives because we know there's a lot of landmines. And we know historically it's very true, the scriptures even talk about this, that sometimes the church is a great place for people who really don't have an interest in serving Jesus hide. You've been very fortunate and gracious to us because I believe over the years you've truly protected us from those kinds of people. But Father, help us to be masters and skilled at doing what is good. Help us to be profoundly innocent but not naive of evil and to live a life in certain ways that always clings to the truth of who Jesus is, the Word of God, so that even in the darkest moments of our culture and our world, we become a shining light and a ray of hope 
because of this treasure that dwells within these simple broken jars of clay is the radiant, glorious presence of Jesus and the gospel. Father, renovate our hearts so that we care about life in the way you care about it. We ask for you, even this morning, however the Spirit of God presses his thumbprint upon an area of our life that you just begin to bring conviction and you cause us to start thinking about, may we learn what obedience looks like as we follow you in this world. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.